On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our insurgent listener polls, learn about the Tumblr sexy man, and preview the Lorax. Hello and welcome back to this film. It's a podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. We got a lot of feedback as well as every other one of our prequel segments. So we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners. And they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Stop Overworking Animators, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. We appreciate your continued support. Katie, let's find out what the people had to say about Insurgent. Yeah, well... You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Indeed. What did the people have to say? Um, On Patreon, we had antivirus protection pop-ups. Go away. On Patreon, we had two votes for the movie, zero for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Shelby says, stop overworking animators, said... So both the book and the movie were better than I remembered. It's probably because Insurgent gets so overshadowed by Allegiant, which is fair. I had a lot of criticisms of how Erudite is villainized in the first book, but I thought Roth did a decent job addressing that in this book. As penance, I have cut my hair like Insurgent Triss. Okay, that's not why, but I did. She did. It looked very cute. I saw a picture. Um, I really liked the portrayal of Triss's PTSD stopping her from using a gun. Mental health issues stopping from doing a thing you used to be able to do is a very realistic experience, and it's rare to see it portrayed in genre fiction. It was a breath of fresh air. The movie just does the standard bad dreams and so on, which I thought was a missed opportunity. I do want to point out that a lot of Tobias's frustration with Triss running into danger is because she refuses to use a gun. I still don't love that whole subplot of them fighting, but I get it. The movie made some good changes and made the plot more digestible, but it also made Triss into a chosen one. I have no strong feelings about that trope, but I know a lot of people are tired of it. I'm going to give Book Peter the Most Interesting Thing in This Book Award, and Movie Peter the Most Entertaining Thing Award. I think where his story ends up in the last book is interesting, but I remember nothing about him in the next movie. The big pleasant surprise I teased for Insurgent was Triss and Four having premarital sex. Mm. They told you they did in the book. I'm still... Continue. I'm still (laughs) not convinced that they do in the book i it, i like you can in, you can infer that but i don't but think that's it's, i mean that's the thing though is that it has to be inferred because it's ya sure but i've seen way more way less subtle inferences i guess i should say in okay. ya it right. just felt well, to me because here's my here's the thing from my memory there was no thing where afterwards she even like ruminates on mm-hmm. What I happened, mean, which is which if you're going to do the inference thing, usually you would have a thing where your main character is like, 
wow, that was right. great, like or that was different, reflect. or I feel, you know, they reflect on it in right. some way. And on I don't the other hand, I, Veronica Roth is not very good about doing that kind of thing with Triss. I mean, maybe, yeah, sure. I Yes, I, I, I agree. I, I'm just, uh, yeah. I, look, I, I'll take <laughs> you guys' word for it that if they do have sex in the book, then sure. But I just, to me, it was like very much ambiguous whether or not that is actually what transpired, but or if they just cuddled. But yes. <laughs> uh, Shelby went on to say, I honestly expected a little more of a reaction in this episode, LOL. Um, I've been looking forward to your Allegiant thoughts for a long time. I think we got a great preview of what's to come in this episode. I await your thorough examination of the coming answers and Roth's oh, no. unusual interpretation of how science works. Oh, no. The hints at the author's favorite trope and her overall point with this trilogy carried through in Insurgent. It's hard to catch when you're reading through it the first time because Roth layers in so much other stuff in these books. But we'll get there. Yeah, I still have no idea what that is. Yeah, <laughs> I have absolutely. Be honest, I have no idea what this is leading to. I, yeah, I, I. So I had a thought the other day, and I tweeted about it on the account. That is the only other possible thing I could think of that might be where it's going. Which, if it is, I will be very disappointed because that's incredibly boring. Uh, but I, I, there's nothing to me that jumps out as like, this is yeah. clearly where this is going or what her favorite trope would be. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'm assuming that'll be clear or at least somewhat clear by the end of Allegiant, um, based on assume. what Shelby has said, but, uh, here's hoping. Uh, Shelby went on to say, speaking of tropes, one of the selling points for a lot of readers when these books were new was the lack of a love triangle. In those days, that was rare for YA. I don't know if that's fair. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm calling it a tie this round because my overall feelings on both were pretty even. Allegiant approaches. Be brave, Brian and Katie. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Did you find it? Hold on. Okay. Because the way it ends doesn't even... Okay, because th it has to be this way at the end of chapter 27, which is the scene in the movie where they have sex, where it's right before she goes and turns herself in. Mm-hmm. Because this is the he tastes like water scene. Mm -hmm. He touches my face, covering my cheeks with his hands, sliding his fingertips down my neck, fitting his fingers to the slight curve of my hips. I can't stop. I fit my mouth as he tastes like water and smells like fresh air. Drag my hand from his neck to the small of his back, put it under his shirt. He kisses me harder. I knew he was strong. I didn't know he was strong until I felt it myself. The muscles in the back tightening beneath my fingers. Stop. I tell myself. Suddenly, it's as if we're in a hurry. His fingertips brushing my side under the shirt. Uh, my hand's clutching at him, struggling closer, but there is no closer. I've never longed for someone this much, this way or this much. He pulls back just enough to look into my eyes. His eyelids lower to promise me that you won't go uh, for me. Do this one thing for me. Could I do that? Could I stay here, fix things with him, let his, someone else die in my place? Looking up at him, I believe for a moment that I could. And then I see Will, the crease between his eyebrows, the empty simulation bound eyes, the slumped body. Do this one thing for me, uh, Tobias's dark eyes plead with me, but if I do go to Erudite, who will? Tobias, or if I don't go to Erudite, who will? Tobias, it's the kind of thing he would do. I feel a stab in my chain, pain in my chest as I lie to him. Okay, promise, he says, frowning. The pain becomes an ache spreading everywhere, all mixed together, guilt, terror, and longing. I promise. And then the chapter ends. And when, when he starts to fall, the next chapter, when he starts to fall asleep, he keeps his arms around me fiercely, a life-preserving prison. But she never reflects on it. To me, that... There's nothing that even said, like, even if this chapter ended with, uh, I promise, uh, and then he kisses me hard. Like, there's not even an implication that they continue, ha like, kissing at the end of this chapter. It's so 
nothing that I I I'm still not okay. convinced. Gonna, all right, Shelby, you're gonna have to weigh in more. I guess <laughs> I'm just not convinced. Like again, it, and I I don't unless I'm misremembering, and there is some line afterwards where she mm-hmm. reflects on it in any way whatsoever. Again, I, I'm not saying you couldn't get that inference out of there. I think you could, but to me, it's the weakest possible implication that they actually have sex there. Whereas in the movie, it's very explicitly clear. Like we, they're in the middle of physical, <laughs> you yeah. know, whatever, and then it fades to black as they're <laughs> like making out and touching. Like that is very clearly an implication. This does not even feel to me like a, a weak YA book implication of having sex. But whatever, it <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I agree about the PTSD thing. I think it's interesting. As I mentioned, it wasn't a huge deal to me, but I did enjoy it. Or I did think that was, I enjoyed that the book did at least somewhat try to tackle that. If even if not handled perfectly, I don't know if I got the, the implication that Tobias's a lot of Tobias's frustration was Tris running into danger while refusing to use a gun. I felt like that might've come up like once. I I think you could definitely like get that from the book i don't know if i don't i don't know if uh it's maybe like explicitly stated enough see and that's like that's like the problem that i'm having with roth's writing is that like i don't know I don't know what is like something that it's just I'm just supposed to infer. Right. Like, I don't know if I'm just supposed to infer that that is what the majority of his frustration is stemming from or if it's just kind of badly written. Because I'm going to be honest. I'm pulling things out of nowhere. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. Reading that sentence, I when I read that the first time I was like, that never once crossed my mind as his main frustration. When I was reading the book, mm-hmm. I, after I read that sentence that Shelby wrote, I was like, oh, okay, I think I remember one time where he like has in a, in a peak of frustration. I think he says something like you won't even use a gun or something like that when he's like fighting with her about it. Yeah. But like, it, it seemed more like a throwaway jab to like hurt her as right. opposed to his primary reason for his, concern i don't know yeah uh but anyways that so that was that and then the other thing that i wanted to address uh or not address but that i wanted to mention is that i the movie uh, when shelby says that the movie made tris into a chosen one i agree in so far as it made her into more of a chosen one but she's already kind of a chosen one in the book i would tend to agree she's one of the chosen ones in the book more so like the movie makes it very explicit with her being the one that needs to unlock this box like she is the one that needs to unlock this box so i I get that it it does amplify the chosen one but she's already it's already kind of chosen oney to me in the book to the point where it doesn't feel like like it doesn't a, feel like that big of a change yeah. in the movie to me and, 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 and I, to I the know, point I where like, it, it doesn't feel i guess just real quick it doesn't feel like so much of a change where i'm like if i was reading the book if i had complaints about the movie making her a chosen one i feel like i would like if it was a trope i disliked i feel like i would already dislike the book for the same reason mm-hmm. just maybe not as intensely mm-hmm. i guess would be my Yeah, the movie definitely amplifies it. But again, going back to what I said a minute ago, my problem with it is that I feel like I don't know 
if Roth is trying to do something that's a little less chosen one. Yeah. Or if she just doesn't know how to write the chosen one trope. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next comment was from Matilde. Uh, Matilde said, I'll keep it shortish and sweet this week. I haven't had time to finish the book yet, but the two thirds I managed to get through didn't impress me much. All right, Shania Twain. I, it didn't impress <laughs> me much either. I'll say that. I thought it was meandering and overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. Roth's style was more annoying in this one too. I can't stand how she has Tris state a feeling, a thought, a metaphor, anything really, and then explain it just in case we don't get it or remember it. Hmm. Ugh. The movie did its best, I would think, but it's forgettable at best. I can't see where the budget went. Certainly not on the screen because the effects were very basic and flat. No thrills there. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think the effects were like amazing. But they I mean, think they there were some amazing. pretty cool sequences that you yeah. can tell they were spending a lot of money on the CG. Like, like some of the ending like, simulations. Yeah, some of the stuff. ending simulations. I, you know, we were watching it and I was like, that would be kind of cool to see on a big yeah, screen. Like the house like in flying the theater, around yeah. and, and, and all that stuff. I, those scenes in particular, I definitely... Yeah, I didn't. I yeah. But again, like you know, not amazing, not groundbreaking. No. no. Yeah, but, but fine. Moderately forgettable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Matilda went on to say, "I expected a sense of scale since we're exploring all the other factions. I got small sets and not much more. I also thought Shailene and Theo had somehow less chemistry in this installment." I would have liked more of Caleb in the book and the movie. From his actions, he feels like he could have been a more interesting character to explore and to follow. Giving it to the movie because it kept my attention more than the book, and because Miles Teller seemed to have fun playing his role. He should play the asshole slash villain more often. I did really like him once he be, and maybe we'll get more of this in the third movie. Um, I did once he becomes the, like, once he saves Triss yeah. and like brings her back to life or, you know, fake kills her or whatever. I liked his performance in the movie. I liked his performance in general. Miles Teller's pretty good, but I, in particular, once he becomes like their begrudging ally, yeah. I really once enjoyed he, his once performance. Once he's got his like his little his quippy third wheel yeah. uh, sidekick yes. hat on. I enjoyed that a lot. I thought that was <laughs> a lot of fun. I also agree that Caleb is an interesting character that, that could mm-hmm. use more time in, in both. Um, and I, I don't know. I felt pretty similarly about Shailene Woodley and, and Theo James in this one as I did the first one, though, yeah. which is that they have pretty good chemistry. They're both good actors. Um, not like amazing chemistry, but like, you know, like, pretty, it, it, it doesn't good. feel like, ugh, like, you know, <laughs> they don't have terrible chemistry. Or I thought they're fine. Uh, last comment on Patreon was from Colin Osborne, uh, who said, was a bit slow catching up with stuff. So I missed the poll for the record movie i liked most of the changes from book to movie it still is a bit of a swiss cheese plot but there are fewer just giant leaps of faith to make also my understanding of a MacGuffin was specifically that it was a character or object whose only purpose was to drive the plot a character you're chasing and the chase is the reason everything happens is a MacGuffin. If it's rescuing a character who has relationships and goals of their own in the story, that's not a MacGuffin. Yeah. So, like, the Maltese Falcon or the Pulp Fiction briefcase are MacGuffins, but the little girl in The Rescuers isn't. Yes. I think that is closer to the traditional, um, 
like definition mm-hmm. of MacGuffin. Again, I, I and I addressed this a little bit in the episode after we talked about it. I went in and recorded a second little note addressing this a little bit because yeah, it's just for whatever reason my understanding of MacGuffin. Maybe my one of my film professors just maybe how he taught it or I don't know, but or how it was discussed or maybe it's just how there's very often I'll find that there are words that I have slightly more specific definitions for and that are not exactly like in my Mm -hmm. head, I will have, I will think a word is meaning is slightly more specific and different than it actually is sometimes. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, I had always applied it to something that, and maybe it's just because the specific example that I always heard referenced was the pulp fiction briefcase where it is a thing that you know nothing about that like extra little bit of it being like a mysterious thing or something was, was part of my definition when it's not really like, yeah. Officially yeah. like part of the definition. Well, and and two with any kind of trope, you can have like different variations on on a trope. Yes. And, yeah. And especially as we create more and more um content and stories, yeah. stuff starts to branch a little bit. Yeah. Um, but cool. Okay, so over on Facebook we had one vote for the movie and one for the book. Um, Warren said, I'll go with the movie. I've not read the book and Netflix in the UK only has the first and third films on here. That's very, that's very odd to me. Hmm. So I have to go off memory from when I watched it years ago. It's been a while, but I remember the film being okay. However, I dug the end twist. The fact that this seemed to be an experiment and that they were supposed to embrace having many divergents instead of being split into their different factions, only for those in charge to stop them and it all going wrong, basically. That idea reminded me a lot of Fallout 3, which I was playing at the time. In that game, the world is destroyed and people are put into different vaults for their safety, only the vaults all had different experiments running on them to see what would happen. So I enjoyed that. I don't know how well that holds up in the actual movie compared to my memory, but that's all I got. Love the episode and love the deep dives. I know you worry about length sometimes, but I'd rather have longer episodes that go into details than skim past stuff and assuming we know it. The work you guys put in really shows. Curious about the third installment now and how that's going to play out. So are we. Aren't we all? So are we. Uh, Yeah, I don't think I have any other comments. I, I, it's been a long time. I actually... I only played a little bit of Fallout Three. Uh, New Vegas was the one I've played all of, so I, don't, I didn't. I didn't know a lot of the details of Fallout Three, but yeah, I. Uh, uh, that's the one with the little cartoon boy who kind of looks yes. like well, uh, that's, the big boy. That's the Fallout series, yes. Um, that has that character, but okay, yeah. Uh, Fallout Three is just one of the games in that series, but yeah. I mean, um, I assumed such from the three. I have him on the shelf. I think I have. Yeah. Oh. There he hey, is. Look at that little this, blonde kid. This is a, a bobblehead that you're hearing of uh, what's his name? I can't even remember his name now. The Vault Tech uh, dude. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Our other comment on Facebook was from Luciana, who said, Well, I'm damn happy I'll never have to read that again. <laughs> Great episode. It's hands down the movie for me, too, but like you two, it's a lesser of two evils thing. I'm going to try to get through the final book, but no promises. I may have to give up and jump straight to the movie. Well, if you do that, you won't get the ending. Uh, just a warning. <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a warning. You won't get the actual ending, whatever it may be, uh, if you skip, if you don't finish the yeah. book, because the movie uh, does not have part two, so, which we will discuss on our prequel for that. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Over on Twitter, we had four votes for the movie, one for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Uh, Julian Graystroke said, what if all of them suck? LOL, all caps. I mean, yes. Uh, yeah, I guess that would be a can't decide. Yeah. <laughs> Our other comment on Twitter was from Kelly Napier. And Kelly said... Okay, I'm going to stand up for the book here while acknowledging the fact that it isn't very good. What I like about the book versus the movie is mostly the approach each vehicle gives to Triss's PTSD. I appreciate that the book really shows her struggling with her actions, specifically against Will. She should be struggling, and she should be wary of taking up the means by which she took a life. It should be hard for her to shoot a gun. The movie really undermines any idea that she's struggling by so easily putting a gun back in her hands. I agree with that. Like I said, yeah. I mentioned in the episode, I do agree with that. Um, it just, there were so many other things with the movie that yeah. just really overwhelmed that for me. And it just didn't, maybe it's because I don't, I don't personally struggle with PTSD or anything like that. So it wasn't something that like I connected mm-hmm. with a lot, but I, I could tell that it, I liked at least somewhat what the book was doing there enough to mention it in the episode. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't yeah. like a huge... Like I said in the episode, I did think it was a little clunky in the book, um, but yeah. a lot of things were clunky yeah. in the book. Um, but I but I do agree that it is a, a different portrayal from what we typically see yeah. of like portrayals of PTSD. Uh, Kelly went on to say, I also like better in the book how Christina initially reacts to Triss when she finds out about Will. In the movie, I felt like Christina allowed herself to be brought back into the fold of Triss's world. She's mad, she's hurt, and it should show. The book seems to better remember that these characters are teenagers, and teenagers are strong and steadfast in their emotions and reactions to things. This goes not only for Triss's PTSD and Christina's grief, but also with Triss's relationship with Four. They're selfish assholes to each other in the book because they're teenagers. Teenagers are selfish assholes. Of course they're awful to each other. They don't have any basis for what a good relationship looks like. Certainly you remember what your first serious relationship in high school looked like. It was nothing but strong emotional responses to everything. And since Four didn't have a good parental relationship to see as a model of what to strive for, he's going to be bad at this. Triss really didn't either since the abnegation didn't outwardly show any emotion or physical connection. If they're both figuring out everything out from scratch and throw messy teenage emotions on top of that, it's going to be dysfunctional. I agree with that. Um, and I, I, I don't mind their relationship in the book necessarily. I I think part of it is tough because it, you, it's very easy to forget how young they're supposed to be in the book. Yeah. Because of everything that's going on and stuff like that, it's I very often forget <laughs> that they are like, you know, teenagers. Um, and especially in the movie, because they're played by like 25 year olds, mm-hmm. it's even tougher to remember that. But yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I will say, and I, I don't think I mentioned in the episode, I actually thought about this, though, and I meant to bring it up, is that I di- one of the things I didn't love about the, the Christina part in the thing in the movie is that it felt like when they ma- changed it to have Tris save her. It felt like a little bit of an easy out for kind of like fixing their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then the movie just kind of like glosses over. And like after that happens, they're like fine again, basically. It felt like and whereas in the book, I enjoyed that it she isn't saving her, but 
Christina comes to her when she needs help because she knows she will help. Um, but their relationship is still kind of messy and, and Tris making the choice to save who she does actually means more to, to Christina than her saving Christina would necessarily. I don't know. I thought the book, I actually liked how they handled that. maybe a little bit more in the movie, even though we didn't talk about it. Um, but so I can agree with that as well about the kind of dynamic with, with her and Christina's relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, I, I just felt in particular, like I, I, I I think I will stand by our criticism of like Tobias in the book and like particularly their relationship and, and stuff is that it just felt very much like he was kind of a different person without much explanation as to why. Yeah. A little bit like he just, Mm -hmm. he, their, their dynamic felt really different and unmotivated and i and I, I get that teenagers are dumb and stupid or whatever but they're also not as much as they are teenagers they also kind of aren't because they're forced to grow up in this like they're forced to i don't know i think it's more yeah. complicated than that and it just felt it just felt messy in a way that didn't feel necessarily indicative of messy teenage romance to me and more like messy writing but that's just me I mean, I I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Kelly went on to say, I also liked in the book that Triss was able to remove the sensors from people after the attack. I thought it showed that while Janine's technology for control was improving, it wasn't foolproof yet. I liked how the book emphasized that Triss was divergent without making her the divergent, when the movie, of course, made her 100% divergent and played into that chosen one trope. It just felt so obvious and played out. Okay, so that's kind of basically what I was saying earlier. I I don't know. It to me it they it feels not that different. Mm-hmm. Personally, like when when I read the book, I was like, yeah, she's the chosen one, basically. Like because yeah. she ends up being the only one that Janine wants to study and like the most important one to study. She kind of is the chosen one. The movie's just like, okay, we're gonna actually admit that she is the chosen one when the book just kind of coyfully hints at the fact that she I don't know, it just yeah, and I think this goes back to what you were saying, yeah. where it's just like, it, it, did Veronica want to write a chosen one plot or narrative or not? And I'm just not sure. And mm-hmm. it seems like she did because she basically did again because it seems like D- Tris is the most important divergent and the one that Janine needs for these studies because she's like so it. special, yeah. uh, so specially divergent. It's like the movie's just like, okay, we're just going to admit that's what we're doing. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I don't, yeah. Um, uh, the book made it seem like it could have been any of them. I don't just, I don't agree with that personally. That I really don't think that the book made it. That was not how I felt reading the book. To me, it felt like the other divergents were like not as divergent or whatever in a way that made them right. as not as and, useful and I to think, Janine. Like, I think like my issue with the way that the book depicted it and, and this kind of idea that like, oh, it, it could have been any of them is that Janine doesn't appear to want to study anyone else, anyone else which doesn't make sense because she's supposed to be like a scientist yeah. and a scholar and she should like like should want as much data as possible yeah so i think that the book could have avoided that yes. implication by having her like continually capture divergence yeah. to study them. like the movie does actually yeah kind of yeah <laughs> which is what the movie it's actually the thing that's really interesting is that the movie actually does that and goes okay well here she like makes her character make more sense by having her just try to study all the divergent 
And and it is what she's doing in the book because she is capturing other divergent like that's the whole raid thing. But then yeah, for whatever reason, it seems that she's only particularly. Well, maybe even it's, maybe even it's when a, even during the raid, like before Triss goes and turns herself in and whatever, they're like, oh well, we only need two of you. Yeah, that's true. Like, yeah, like which is a weird. Why don't you want more data? Yeah. Yeah, like that we doesn't talked about make with the, any where, sense. where he like kills the kid, and it's like, well, why would you not? Want yeah, to... why would you not want to study a developing yeah, divergent? Yeah, it doesn't I... make any sense. Yeah, I agree. I, to me, it just felt like the movie admitted, yeah, admitted what the book was again, just kind of hinting at without wanting to say for some. Like I don't know, it's just weird. Yeah, mm. like again, I think it actually would have been maybe more horrifying in its own way too if. And not to rewrite the book, but if like when when Triss is in all those things and who knows, maybe she was studying other people. We never get any hint that she necessarily is. I don't recall. Maybe there's yeah. some throwaway line about it. I'm sure she has studied other divergent. Obviously, she is capturing other divergent other than Triss. But um, when Triss is in there, she's the only one we see and the only one kind of. Yeah. And again, she is she's quarantined and stuff, so she she wouldn't know a whole lot. But I actually think it would have been really interesting if there were some other scenes in the book where they're doing some sort of tests where it's not just Triss. Yeah. Where it is some other divergence that have been caught with her that they're running these battery of tests on. Maybe, maybe sometimes she's doing these tests like an MRI by herself, but maybe another time they're doing some other tests and there's like four of them hooked up to some machine and, or you know what yeah. I mean? Like that, if you're going to do the, I don't know, I think that could have been interesting, but it just, to me, it just, yeah. Um, Anyways. Anyway. Uh, Kelly also said, finally, I liked in the book when the factionless quietly took control without anyone realizing it. Oh, here, let me hold your gun for you. I thought it helped to reinforce the idea that everyone has written these people off. And by doing that, it's possibly doomed them all. Yeah, I didn't mind that. I thought that was fun. Yeah, I thought that I thought was a fun was, twist. I mean, the, yeah. the movie basically just excises that almost entirely. Yeah. So, yeah. No, but I agree. I enjoyed that in the book. Yeah. I, I like that little detail. Um, that which which does make me wonder, like, how important it yeah, is. Yeah, how important is it? It's similar to the hard drive. Yeah, like, how important is it going to be that the divergent or that the fact yeah. was kind of took control? And again, because the movie has everybody seemingly leave without knowing what's going to happen, yeah. it's like, oh, is any of that going to matter? Because are they going to, uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. We'll find out. Um, okay. And while I understand that this is the whole point of your podcast... I don't think these books are meant to be looked at too closely. Listen, Kelly, some of us have two English degrees and don't know how to consume media any other way anymore. I, I no, and I actually, I will disagree. We do. I know you're joking. I know you're, you know, you're kind of joking, but like, um, and, and obviously like Kelly said, it's the whole point of the podcast, but I, I, this book is trying to say something. Again, yes, like I there agree. is media it's out trying. there is media out there that I think it's perfectly valid to be like, look, you just it's just it's, it's just, just for fun, stupid and fun, like yeah. whatever, like that exists. I even think Twilight fits that more than this personally. Like I would say Twilight arguably is yeah. more like just turn your brain off. It's just I'll, a sappy I'll, yes, romance. At least until like, the last book. Yes. But like in general, like it's, it's yeah, it's just a fun romance. You're not supposed to, and it, you know, even Fifty Shades by extension kind of is similar. But I, I think you are, <laughs> I think it's a little like dismissive to say that, you know, this, that, that w with this book in particular, that it's not meant to be like looked at too closely. Cause I, I don't think Veronica Roth would say that about this book. Maybe she would, maybe she'd be like, I don't know. It's just, but if so, I, it's, it, it, it's doing too much. There's too much going on 
There's mm-hmm. too much thematically being like alluded to and swirling yeah. around and you can't set up a dystopian political like thriller, not thriller, you know, pol- dystopian political action adventure book and then be like, well, but there's not really any like that's about right. like the, that's about the way we organize society and then be like, well, you don't don't think about it too much. To me, that just doesn't really like mesh yeah. with this book necessarily. Um, but anyways, um, uh, so the end of uh, Kelly's comment here was to quote Cher from Clueless. She's a full on Monet. It's a painting. See, from far away, it's OK, but up close, it's a big old mess. We're not supposed to look too deep. We're supposed to be caught up in the adrenaline and emotion of what we're reading and be going too fast to catch the fact that the book actually sucks. Because while I voted for it, it does suck. So does the movie. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think the problem, again, just to, is that the book isn't uh, emotional or adrenaline filled enough for me to. Look uh, yes, past I the, would. I would agree with that. <laughs> to like, and I, Ellen, that like, just... I, I agree with you too. I think that because there is an attempt at messages and themes in this book, I think Veronica Roth does want us to read it critically. Yeah, I, I don't I think, think so. she did a good job, yeah. but I think that was her aim. Yes. And if it wasn't, she picked the wrong genre Yeah, because dystopia is inherently political. Yeah, and, and you could even do, you know, I, I would agree with that, but even if you're going to do dystopia, I think there's even a way to do a, a, a dystopia kind of YA series that is less... Yeah, you know, for but sure. again, you're, this book is literally about the the way society is organized and about how what led what why why society fell and and the the, the problems with human personalities and all that. like it is a deeply mm-hmm. political and and uh, philosophical yes. um, you know topic. Like it, it's just not it's just not the the book where I'm gonna look at it and go yeah well no, this is fun. No, like whatever. I mean, again, if it were more more fun, maybe, maybe I could say that. Like, if this were <laughs> again, if it were a rollicking good yes, time, if I had a, just a great time reading it and be like, no, I didn't really care because I just enjoy it. Yeah. But and again, obviously, that's very subjective. Maybe arguably more subjective than like critically analyzing it. Um. But yeah, it, it's just yeah, and you know, if this was Mad Max Fury Road. There's a ton politically going on in Mad Max Fury Road, but I can show that movie to my parents and they would not think about a second <laughs> of the the the, the th- uh, like thematically necessarily what uh-huh. is going on. And I don't want to say none, but they very much they would ignore not a lot of the thematic. Right, the is going primary on. focus would be the fun yes, aspect of th- it because yeah. that movie is a thrill ride. Like it is just one of the most incredibly made action movies ever. And so, yeah, I could I could get it if it was something like that, where I'm like, oh, yeah, that was just freaking awesome. But mm-hmm. unfortunately for me, the book just wasn't or movie just wasn't freaking awesome to where <laughs> I could just turn my brain off and not care. <laughs> All right. Um, over on Instagram, we had six votes for the movie and six for the book. Uh, L Hallowell 331 said movie is much better because we have Theo James to look at. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, look. He's not my type, but a very attractive man. He's a man. handsome man. Yes, he also handsome. just got nominated for an Emmy. Good for him. For White Lotus, which he is great in White Lotus. Yeah, yeah, he is. Did you see the Emmy nominated? Just real quick to sidetrack. It's really dumb. 
the the Emmy nominations. I believe it was oh, the where Emmys. it's like all people from two shows. It is for yeah. the for the best supporting actor. It is literally like every actor, every character from the White Lotus and Secession, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> which is wild. I liked the White Lotus a lot. I would not have nominated every single supporting <laughs> actor in that show <laughs> at all. <laughs> I think mainly I would just support I would I think I the guy from the Sopranos maybe <laughs> and like and that's about it. Maybe Theo James, I think he was the other one that was most interesting, but so, anyway, I was blown away by that. Um okay, uh Anal Fracture 42 said, "I guess it is a tie for me. Didn't read the book, but found the movie to be pretty annoying. Yeah, just not a type of story for me." However, I love these long critical episodes even better than the serious reviews. There you go. I mean, it was a serious review. I was, I, also all, just, all of our reviews are both critical and, and serious. serious yeah. Well, I think when he <laughs> says critical, I, I think they're saying like um, we like rip riff on. Yes. It. Like I think that's what they're getting at. Yeah. Like we kind of like make fun of it a little bit. Yeah. Where we don't always. I mean, that <laughs> truly did, comes down to like how much we enjoyed and how good we True. thought it was. So. Um, um, Leiden Coolidge said, my vote goes to the book. Unlike the first movie, the sequel to me felt hollow, devoid of any character development and replaced with fast paced action spectacle. Small talk, then action, another talk, then action again, etc. Supporting characters who were supposed to be involved in the plot have minimal screen time. However, I did love the scene where Janine's reaction to Tris pointing a gun at Peter was saying, that's okay, you could kill him. We have plenty of guards. Too bad she didn't pull the what? trigger. He couldn't, he couldn't have saved her then, yeah, though, if she, she had killed died. him. Uh, the book, on the other hand, was more engaging, despite the flaws of Veronica Roth's writing, than the first one. Wow. Once I got past the first eight chapters... That's a that's a pretty big uh, that's a pretty big grace period for me. Third, fifth of the book, I yeah. think about a fifth of the book. Um, Four's backstory: his conflicted relationship with both father and mother, beating his father to prove he is still dauntless and worthy to be a leader. Uh, Tori killing Chanine for the death of her brother. Candor interrogating Triss and Ford to get to the truth by any means necessary felt intense, like something out of a crime novel. Factionless being more than just poor people from the city. Some of them might be divergents just like Triss. Not some of them. A lot like of a them are. A lot of are. them, yeah. That, they, that is a thing that is mentioned in the in the book. I don't yeah. know if it's mentioned in the movie, but in the book, it's they have the highest population of divergent mm -hmm. people. Uh, Triss's divergent abilities and how they function are explained. She has mirror neurons that mimic the skills of other factions. At least that's how I understood yeah, it. Yeah, that's how I. Which uh, is that's, mm, uh, that section to me was no, just a lot I of science that. babble. That was science babble that was unnecessary for what we're doing here, in my yeah. opinion, because it also I think is probably nonsense. Like I, just, I don't think that's how mirror neurons work. I am not a uh, a psych or not a psychiatrist. I am not a neurologist, but it just seemed like very. <laughs> Questionable. I, I actually I googled mirror neurons while I was reading to make sure that Veronica Roth wasn't just making shit up. No, I knew those were they a are thing. thing. I've heard of them, but, but I don't know if they would do the thing she's yeah, saying. I, don't, I, I, I have no idea. I, I'm speculating, so I Maladen may know better than I do. I honestly so. Uh, Caleb's betrayal surprised me, even though I should have seen it coming. I don't think you should have. <laughs> I think it should surprise you because I don't think it was. I don't yeah, think there was, was any way not, in the book that to, was not plotted to see that coming well, personally. But, but. Um, <laughs> that's everything I remember. My apologies. I didn't take more notes. Overall, unlike the previous huh. episode, I enjoyed the book a lot more than the adaptation. 
even though it had new characters that ultimately didn't matter. Like Tori's tattoo colleague, Bud. Remember him? Nope. Neither did the writer because he contributed nothing to the plot. Don't be surprised if the same vote goes for the third book, since the movie tried to do Mockingjay but never filmed part two because part one bombed at the box that, office. That might be, though, the, the way that, for us, <laughs> that, that, that the third book pulls out a win by virtue uh, yeah, of being complete. Be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we're on Goodreads. We had one vote for the movie and zero for the book. Um, Miko said, after Divergent, I was interested to see how much these movies rely on book knowledge to be understood. So to get a fresh perspective, I watched Insurgent before reading it. The movie didn't end up being confusing, just painfully generic. Okay. I thought the mystery box was a bit silly, but after reading the book, I prefer something a little bit silly over the book's nothingness in its place. It took almost 350 pages for me to accept that the box would not appear. I was thinking that without a villain viewpoint, the book the book kept it secret for way longer. The movie tightens up the plot admirably, but the result is still meh. I was actively forgetting the movie while watching it. Yeah, it's fair. Again, it's not a good it's movie. It's not a great movie. <laughs> no. It's just better than the book by like a little bit. Yeah. When Tris figures out she's in a simulation thanks to the phrase scary boyfriend things, I had no idea where that was set up. I managed to miss Peter giving the sedative to Tris too. I'd also argue that Caleb's choice to rejoin Erudite feels motivated in the movie only if you've read the book and know to look for it. That may be fair. That may be yeah, true that, 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 it, that be because we had read the book first, it felt like his 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 turn in the in the movie was more motivated. Whereas I'm I'm really glad. I by the way, uh, uh, Miko, I love that you did this experiment for us to see <laughs> how it how it how it felt watching the movie first and then reading the book, but. Um, when he reappeared, I couldn't for the life of me think of anything that would have set it up and remembered his earlier scenes only when you brought them up. The movie also has the bad habit of dropping characters, like Christina and Uriah, who have proper scenes but suddenly become background extras. I still prefer it over the character problem in the book. I know I'm not the best with names, but I was so overwhelmed by the onslaught of characters that when the Edith Pryor hologram popped up, I thought it was Triss's mother. You, at you're first. not alone there. I had yeah. to go double check. I was like, I don't think her mom's name is Edith, but I yeah. have to her mom's literally name had was to check. Natalie, yes, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I also had to be like, I'm pretty sure that's not, but Which, I wasn't a hundred percent positive. Assuming that. And I would assume that abnegation does at least assuming that the wife takes the husband's name. It would have to be oh, her you're paternal right. yeah. grandmother yeah, or yeah, great-grandmother. Right. You're right. Yeah. Um, as hopeful as the movie's ending feels, it meant my final thoughts were, why would everyone leave everything behind on the spot <laughs> and try to walk out of Chicago? I, yeah. Where are you marching to? 80 miles to Milwaukee? You're trusting there are friendly people alive close by and in the direction you're going with little to no evidence. I, All fair. I will say that I, I I agree. I took that more sort of, I, you know, I, I took that ending a little more maybe figuratively yeah. than like actual then, yeah. literally like they're all just walking out right now. I mean, that is what we're seeing. And I think we are meant to think that. But I I. I think I interpreted it. I gave the movie a little bit of grace there and that we're kind of like the, <laughs> uh, here's the thing, though, is that I think interpreting it kind of metaphorically and hopefully maybe only works if that is the way that the series ends. 
Because with a third installment coming up, I think all of those are like valid questions. Like, where are you going? Right, What's yes, your plan? Yes, yes. No, I would agree with that. Uh, my prediction is that the next movie will quite literally walk back the ending and say that no one left the city straight away. I am wondering if they would do that. I don't know. If if the if they I'm actually wondering if maybe they gave this movie that ending more so as a it's like kind a, of an ending fail safe. Yes. Yeah. As like a, in case something happens and we don't end up making yeah. the third one, at least this is kind of an ending kind of. Um, and that if they, since they are making the third movie that maybe they will, like you said, literally walk that back. We'll see. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, the first people leave to leave would then be Triss and friends on a recon mission. I could analyze this adaptation for hours like you, but the end result would be the same. My vote goes for the movie. Um, and some other miscellaneous notes from Miko. Triss and Caleb are not twins, as stated in Divergent. Quote, Caleb is not mm. quite a year older than I am, so we are in the same year at school. I do not remember I do not remember that, but, that, but that is exactly what I was saying. Yeah. And that yes, she was born at the beginning like, of the year, and then, or he was born like at the beginning of the year. Like, where they fall apart, um from each other their birthdays yeah. fall they just ended up in the same year yeah which is it's sense. also possible they could have um some sort of medical intervention that made getting pregnant quickly possible also yeah. like whereas in real life or you right. know in our current especially day, if takes, they're trying to like repopulate yeah yeah in current day it takes you know it's a couple months right or something before it's advisable to um, <laughs> it's, it's at least a while before it's advisable yeah well it's a while before it's advisable i don't know it's probably, it's probably sh a sh much, shorter much shorter time before where you it's could. possible yes, yeah. but i don't know about advisable right um and then uh, miko's final note here uh, thanks for the snl train sketch <laughs> image my personal fan theory was that a disgruntled factionless driver just chooses to never stop. <laughs> yeah, no, that could be, yeah. Yeah. Like, screw these people. Because, yeah, we, we do know that the factionless are, um, uh, was this a quote from the book? I don't know if this is a quote from the or book. Or like a Speaker, wiki? Uh, wrote, uh, the factionless are janitors and construction workers and garbage collectors. They make fabric and operate trains and drive buses. Yeah, because and maybe that's either a quote or maybe it's like a Wikipedia. Yeah, like because I don't remember that being mentioned. I don't remember the train specifically. Yeah. I do remember there being a mention of them being like janitors and construction, like right. and garbage collectors. But yeah. I don't remember specifically the operate. I feel like I would remember the operating trains because I'd be like, oh, maybe they operate. Like I feel yeah. like I would remember that, but maybe not. Interesting. All right, so our winner was the movie with 14 votes to the book's eight, um, plus our two listeners who couldn't decide. There you go. Thank you all very much for that feedback. We love it. We love talking about it. We love hearing what you have to say, even when we disagree. It's fun. I'm like arguing with you through the internet. <laughs> Katie, it's time to learn what is a Tumblr sexy man. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Is this is this about the one slur? Yes, it okay, is. Okay, great. <laughs> Listen, I had a lot of fun writing this. Fair enough. Um, all right, so some of you might have questions. Uh, questions like what and why. Um, fear not, I will answer your questions. So let's start with the what. A Tumblr sexy man is a tongue-in-cheek name for a male character that becomes popular among Tumblr users um, to the point that it could be argued that the character itself 
is its own fandom. Like di- divorced from whatever yes. media they're part of. Yes. Yeah. Um, some people use the more broad term fandom sexy man to refer to this phenomenon, but this kind of thing does tend to originate on Tumblr. Yeah. Love you guys, um, but you are the source. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a quick note for our listeners who aren't familiar with this topic, um, fandom is a word that's used to describe the general process of engaging with pop culture, especially in online spaces. Um, it's more than just generally being a fan of something. Mm-hmm. Fandom is more specifically defined by the consumption, creation, and proliferation of fan-made content such as fan art and fan fiction. Fandom often revolves heavily around the concept of headcanon, which we can loosely define as theories, characterizations, and relationships that are outside of the original canon material, but that take hold within fandom spaces. Mm -hmm. So a few examples of Tumblr sexy men um, include uh, Loki, Mm -hmm. uh, Hannibal Lecter from, from the TV show, not from the movies. The movies one, he's not sexy enough. Uh, The TV show specifically. Uh, Bill Cipher from Gravity Falls. Kylo Ren. Tony the Talking Clock from Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Um, uh, Many, many others. And then the main sexy man that we will be discussing, the Onceler from 2012's The Lorax. Incredible. It's an incredible topic. Again, that is not an exhaustive list. There are many characters that could be considered Tumblr sexy men to varying degrees. Um, All right. Now let's expand on that original definition because any male character who becomes popular on Tumblr doesn't really cut it. The Tumblr sexy man is so named because sexiness is a key element of what catapults the character to fandom popularity. Now, this sexy aspect could be inherent within the original text that the character appears in, or it could be a fandom headcanon addition to that character. Fandom art will often reimagine non-human characters in a more humanoid form. Um, Bill Cipher and Tony the Talking Clock are good examples of this. More on this later. (laughs) The other critical defining characteristic of the Tumblr sexy man is his evil or at least morally gray alignment. Mm -hmm. The Tumblr sexy man is a bad boy. That is key. This aspect of the archetype usually does come from the original text. However, it might be softened by the fandom. Um, For example, During Loki's heyday as a Tumblr sexy man following the first Avengers movie, um, fan art and fan fiction usually reimagined him as much softer and less power-hungry and genocidal than he is depicted in the context of the film. Mm -hmm. This content was absolutely inescapable if you were on Tumblr during this era. Um, Basically, it's big I-can-fix-him energy. Right. Although in that specific instance, I do wonder if that has anything to do with Obviously, it's it's specifically focused around the movie version of Loki, but I imagine that Loki's character arc that we get in the films and TV shows is predated by comic yes, character absolutely. arcs, whereas it would be known to some of these people that... At least some of at them. At least some of them, like I said, maybe but in the early stages. But a lot of people yes. are working primarily off the films. I fully understand that and, 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 and get that. I'm just saying that in that particular instance, you would do at least have a character that has a wider mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I get I get what you're saying. Oh, how could I forget one of the other big Tumblr sexy man, Snape? I was gonna. I actually almost how mentioned could Snape. I? How could I forget? Yeah, Snape? I was. I was actually like, I'm surprised you didn't mention Snape. How could I? There's, how could I have forgotten a Snape? Whole, I, oh, I know oh, about oh, Snape wives. I right? know about Snape <laughs> wives even know, too. I even know about Snape wives. So, <laughs> um, yeah, the the big I can fix him energy. Yeah what we've got going on here okay so these are the two main traits that define the tumblr sexy man but even with that it's easy to get the wrong idea of what exactly this is especially if you don't have any or much familiarity with fandom culture Mm -hmm. so the tumblr sexy man isn't just a villain that people find hot It is much more mired in the tendency that fandom, and especially white women in fandom, has to latch on to white male characters and quote-unquote twinkify them Mm -hmm. and then proceed to fetishize them. Thus, the Tumblr sexy man is also inextricably linked with the fandom penchant for slash shipping. Right. Another quick note for our non-fandom, non-chronically online friends. Um, Shipping is when members of a fandom romantically link two or more, but generally two, characters. Um, This, again, could be a relationship that's present in the original text or not. These two characters do not have to meet. They don't even have to be from the same properties for people to ship them. In fact, I would conjecture that non-canon or fanon ships are more numerous and often more popular than canon ships. I would say almost assuredly, yes. Um, Slash shipping specifically describes any same-sex pairing, but fandom at large tends to overfixate on male-male pairings. Right. And at least part of this is because uh, official or mainstream media sources have his- have historically not included yes. LGBTQIA characters or relationships, which means that if fans want those characters' relationships, and they do, they have to imagine them, right? They have to make it headcanon. Yeah. I, did, I don't know if we discussed this in our fanfic uh, uh, learning thing segment, but I, Slash, I don't know if it's the original, I don't think you're... I, did a quick search and I don't think you're going to mention it, but like one of the most famous and where maybe arguably all of the slash fic started was uh, Spock and Kirk from yes. Star Trek. Yeah. I thought we might've mentioned that in one of our, we probably learning things segment did. a long time ago, a long yeah. time ago, but yeah. Um, okay. So uh, if you want that stuff, you have to put Do it, it into the stories yourself. Uh, however, more than a little bit of this phenomenon is again, very inextricably linked to fetishization of hot white gay boys and a lot of people a lot of different people in fandom do this but again it has been an a special problem from straight white cisgender women Mm -hmm. within fandom which brings us back around to slash shipping and twinkification of tumblr sexy man characters i want to be clear that i'm not judging or condemning here but I'm honestly, I'm not even sure how to describe this. If you Google Bill Cipher fan art human, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The character of Bill Cipher as he appears in Gravity Falls is a floating triangle with one eye and a top hat. In his tenure as a Tumblr sexy man, the fan art reimagines him as a tall, thin, very dapper white boy. Mm. 
So yeah, that that's twinkification. Right. That's what we're on about here. Okay, after reading this in, so let's address the why. Why, Katie? Why are we talking about Tumblr sexy men? Yes, why? Well, it is because, as I mentioned, the Onceler from 2012's The Lorax is one of the more well-known and infamous examples of a Tumblr sexy man you knew. Yes, I was aware. I'm aware because of one video, but yes. <laughs> Which I don't know if you're going to mention or not, but... I don't, the Sarah I don't Zen have video? A, oh, I, I have... Yeah, I've okay. watched it. That's but, the only... That's the, it's the yeah. only reason I would have been aware at all. <laughs> I had no idea. I would have had no idea otherwise. Uh, so the Wensler had a lot going for him in canon that resulted in Tumblr sexy mandom. For example, he's already a tall, thin white boy. Mm. He even has emo bangs. We love that. Uh, he already dresses in a dapper manner, especially as he gets more evil. And he's already evil, um, or at least morally gray. We haven't watched the movie yet, um, so we'll see how evil he actually is. Yeah, no idea. Uh, the Wunsler also doesn't have any canon romantic relationships, which is great because, as we've already covered, fandom loves coming up with non-canon ships. Mm -hmm. And what fandom did here is really interesting because they actually shipped the Wunsler with himself instead of another character. Um, specifically, they shipped the early, more innocent version of him with the later, more evilly, openly evil version. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, some sources cite the Wunsler as the original Tumblr sexy man. I don't think that's true uh, because there are examples that predate the Wunsler's popularity. However, I think it is fair to say that the Wunsler has become kind of a gold star example of what a Tumblr sexy man is. Uh, this version of the Wunsler's popularity exploded to the point that he left his original context of the Lorax um, and for a time became so ubiquitous online that someone who wasn't involved in fandom and wasn't on Tumblr could encounter the fandom depictions of him in other online spaces, just out in the wild. I will say I don't think I ever did. I'm pretty terminally online. Uh, I don't know if maybe he did, and I just never noticed. It's very possible that I saw him on Reddit and was like, I have no idea what the fuck this well, is. I, uh, our, our first uh, social media post that's like a screen cap from the movie went up today, um, which I have I, hashtags on, on Instagram. I have hashtag Wunsler. Oh, is it Wunsler? And it's got like 8,000 likes. Doesn't have 8,000 <laughs> likes, but there are likes that are from dedicated Wunsler accounts. Fantastic. Incredible. Um, so if you have ever seen a weird drawing of the Wunsler from 2012's The Lorax and not had any clue what that was about, this one's for you, baby. There you go. Uh, informing our less terminally online. Some of I, I'm sure a lot of our audience <laughs> is as terminally, if yes. not more terminally online than we are. But uh, for any of you who aren't, there you go. Now and, you know. and actually, if you are familiar with with the Tumblr sexy man and like this whole thing, would love to hear your thoughts on it as well, <laughs> because because I think everybody. You know, Tumblr has that reputation of being like the fandom space, but based on like what you interacted with and engaged with, you could have a very different experience yeah. of Tumblr than somebody else on Tumblr at the same time did. So I would be very interested in hearing what other people's experiences were 
with this topic. Absolutely. There you go. Well, now it's time to preview the book that the once lurk comes from. Is he in the book? Yes. Okay. The book that the once lurk comes from. We're talking about The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Yes! Did your ball land in my backyard again? A model airplane, this time. <laughs> Let's go take a look. Whoa, this is amazing! What are those? Those are trees. They used to grow all around here. <laughs> what I want more than anything is to see a real living tree. Life and day. So, Mom, do you happen to know if there's, like, any place where I could get a real tree? The Lorax is a 1971 children's book by Dr. Seuss. I wrote down his actual name, but yes. I thought I forgot to check again how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to say it. It's Geisel. Geisel? I believe. Written by Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss. Uh, the story is commonly recognized as a fable concerning the dangers of greed causing human destruction of the natural environment um, using the literary element of personification to create uh, character representations of industry, the environment, and environmental activism. Mm -hmm. The Lorax was apparently Dr. Seuss's personal favorite of his books. Um, of its creation, he stated, quote, "...the Lorax came out of me being angry." The ecology books I'd read were dull. In the Lorax, I was out to attack what I think are evil things and let the chips fall where they might. There you go. Um, other commonly cited one sources... Of the, one of the things that, uh, that Dr. Seuss hated and <laughs> had negative feelings about that I think we can all agree with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unproblematically. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, other commonly cited potential sources of inspiration for the book um, are a specific Monterey cypress tree uh, that once stood at Ellen Browning Scripps Park in California, um, which was visible from the author's home there, as well as the relationship between the patas monkey and the whistling thorn acacia. Uh, in 19... I assume they have some sort of like symbiotic. Yeah. Like thing uh, the or... monk, the monkeys get like most of their food sourced from this tree. I had to do a little bit of digging. What did the monkeys do for the tree? I don't know. Okay. It probably like proliferate the seeds. Yeah, through their poop. that would be my guess. That would yeah. that would be mostly how that works. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that would be my guess. Um, in 1988, the book was challenged in the school district of Laytonville, a town in rural Northern California. Uh, the parents who challenged it worked for the logging industry yep. and were upset by their child's reaction to the story. With the father stating, "Quote: He came home and labeled me a criminal." <sighs> <laughs> However, the book remained in the second grade curriculum oh uh, in that district, so the challenge was not successful. Nice. However, the logging industry was not done. Of course not. In 1995, Terry Burkett, a member of a family-owned hardwood flooring factory, authored Truax, an illustrated children's story that offered a logging-friendly perspective to an anthropomorphic tree known as the guard bark. Huh. 
This 20-page booklet was published by the National Oak Flooring Manufacturers Association and points out the reseeding efforts of the logging industry. Uh, However, the story was criticized for what was viewed as skewed arguments and clear self-interest. And I did find the PDF of the Truax. It is something. I will say I don't I I, I'm going to go on a little bit of a limb here, pun intended, um, that I I I believe that the logging thing might be more complicated than I'm, I am now one to uh, agree with the National Oak Flooring Manufacturers Association. <laughs> I am simply saying that I think environmentally the issues are more far reaching and greater than the logging industry. I think actually the log like there I think there are ways to practice very sustainable and and um, not saying that any of these companies were doing it because they very likely were not. And still aren't, probably. But I believe there are ways to practice very environmentally friendly logging to some extent. Um, whereas other issues with the environment and stuff like that are way more prolific and problematic than logging necessarily. There are definitely practices of the logging industry that are terrible uh, and have been in the past and stuff like that. And again, I'm this is just uh, I have a vague somewhere in my head bouncing around article that I read from somewhere reputable, some scientific something about the logging industry being it's, it's not quite as like logging bad. It's not as simple as like logging bad necessarily, I guess would be Mm -hmm. my point. Um, That being said, I again am not inclined to. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm not inclined to uh, side with the national Oak flooring association. No, absolutely not. And I, I do um, definitely I, I, I had a, I had a look through True X and it, it it does feel very skewed and self-interested. To right. Me. Yes. That that is almost assuredly the case. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, speaking of um, other uh, environmental issues, though, uh, there was actually a line that was removed from the book. Uh, the line, I hear things are just as bad up in Lake Erie. Um, was removed more than 14 years after the story was published um, following two research associates from the Ohio Sea Grant program who wrote to Dr. Seuss about the cleanup of Lake Erie. Hmm. Um, And they ended up taking that line out. Uh, The line does remain in the home video releases of the 1972 television special. Um, It is in one of the audiobook editions, and it's also in the UK edition of the book still as well. Yeah. Um, based on a 2007 online poll, the National Education Association listed the Lorax as one of its teachers' top 100 books for children. In 2012, it ranked number 33 among the top 100 picture books in a survey published by School Library Journal, um, and it was the second of five Dr. Seuss books on that list. And my final note here, aside from the 2012 film that we will be covering, the book was also adapted as a 1972 television special, which I have very distinct memories of watching in our elementary school library. I'm sure I watched it as well, but I don't. Um, And also as a 2015 stage musical. Interesting. All right. That is a little bit about the Lorax, the book. Now let's learn about the Lorax, the film. Did you chop down this tree? I think he did it. Mm. 
have been warned. Thanks. Yeah, okay. You have been warned. The Lorax is a 2012 film directed by Chris Renaud, uh, who directed Despicable Me 1 and 2, Secret Life of Pets 1 and 2, and Kyle Balda. They're like a directing partnership mm. uh, who directed, or on this one, uh, Kyle Balda directed Minions, Despicable Me 3, and Minions The Rise of Gru, among other things. Because uh, these are all, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Illumination. Illumination, yeah. yeah. The film was written by the duo of Cinco Paul and Ken Dur Dario, who wrote uh, the Horton Hears a Who movie for Illumination, Despicable Me 1, 2, and 3, Secret Life of Pets 1 and 2, and, interestingly, I didn't realize this, Schmigadoon. We just hmm. watched Schmigadoon recently on, I think it's on Apple TV. Mm -hmm. um, really fun musical show. Yeah, we if, really enjoyed it. If you like musicals, uh, highly recommend checking out Schmigadoon on uh, Apple TV. Um, but yeah, they, uh, uh, I think Cinco Paul specifically is the one who wrote Schmigadoon. I don't mm -hmm. know if Dario worked on it. I think he might have. But the two of them wrote all those movies together. They're like a writing partnership duo thing. The film stars Danny DeVito, Ed Helms, Zac Efron, Taylor Swift, Rob Riggle, Jenny Slate, Betty White, Nassim Pedrad, and Stephen Tobolowski, among others. The film has a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 46% on Metacritic, and a 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb. So not, not incredible reviews overall. Yeah. The film made $349 million against a budget of $71 million, so pretty successful. Audrey Geisel uh, approached Illumination, uh, who is the she, Audrey Geisel, the second wife and widow of Dr. Seuss, uh, Theodore Geisel, approached Illumination executive Chris Melan Melandandry, uh, who she had worked with on the Horton Hears a Who film a few years earlier, and told him that the Lorax was the next movie she wanted to do. She was like, I want to do the Lorax. Quickly, uh, uh, Melandran Mel Melandandry, he brought back Cinco Paul and Kendario, who, like who I said, as I said, had written Horton Hears a Who, uh, to write the script for the Lorax. And then in 2010, Danny DeVito was brought on as the Lorax. That feels like a no brainer. Yes. Danny DeVito apparently reprised his role in five different languages. Wow. So along with the English version, DeVito did the Russian the German, the Italian, the Catalan-Valencian, and the Castilian-Latin-Spanish versions. Uh, so he learned all of his lines for these phonetically because he does not actually speak any of those languages, but it is Danny DeVito doing the you voice. Know, you know, you could have just allowed me to believe that Danny DeVito speaks all of those languages, and I, I would have believed I, it. I, I would too, but <laughs> unfortunately, uh, yes, he did it phonetically. Uh, this was apparently Illumination's first IMAX 3D film, which they marketed by calling it IMAX 3D. Mm, okay. <laughs> Speaking of marketing, <laughs> there was a bit of controversy around the marketing of this film. Uh, there's a ton of uh, product like bot like like crossovers. Not I don't know if they're in the movie necessarily, but uh -huh. like around the marketing of yeah. the movie when it was coming out. Uh, and specifically, Mazda used the, the film as a tie-in advertisement for their CX-5 SUV. God. Uh, obviously, shilling cars kind of goes against the main messaging of the film. But Stephanie Sperber, who is the president of Universal Partnerships and Licensing, which I assume is the, the branch of Universal's pictures or whatever that... Um, uh -huh. That, that does all their like licensing and, you know, partnerships with brands and stuff like that. She said uh, of the partnership, 
Quote, we chose to partner with the Mazda CX-5 because it's a really good choice for consumers to make who may not have the luxury or the money to buy electric or, or buy a hybrid. It's a way to take the better environmental choice to everyone. End quote. A likely story. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the film was also used to sell seventh generation disposable diapers. Which okay. Is interesting. I hope they were also biodegradable diapers. Uh, in total, Illumination Entertainment struck more than 70 different product integration deals for the film, also including IHOP, Whole Foods, and uh, this one uh, makes sense, the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Okay, so yeah, that makes that sense. One, that one, you, yeah, like, all right. Uh, so the two main characters in this film that aren't the Lorax are named Ted and Audrey. Uh, and unsurprisingly, that's they're named after Dr. Seuss and his wife, Audrey. Hmm. So there you go. Theodore and... Audrey. Unlike the original book, and normally I wouldn't include this, but I wanted to. Unlike the original book, the Onceler is shown fully in this story as a human. Uh, executive producer Christopher Melendandry uh, said of the change, quote, the minute you make the one, and I actually really thought this was interesting. The minute you make the Onceler a monster, you allow the audience to interpret that the problem is caused by somebody who is different from me, and it ceases to be a story that is about all of us. Then it's a story about, oh, I see, the person who led us into this predicament is not a person. It's somebody very, very different. And so it takes you off the hook, end quote. Yeah, that is really interesting. Like I said, normally I wouldn't include mm -hmm. a note like this, but I, I did this time because I wanted to see if how well we think this works. Because I, in, at least initially, agree very much with the spirit of that quote. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that I, I buy that. Um, but we'll see how it goes yeah. in, uh, in the movie. Um. But little did he know what he was unleashing. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. Uh, fun, fun, fan, random fun. I have one random fun fact. At the movie's premiere, Zac Efron dropped a condom on the ground during picture taking on the red carpet. Is that a fun fact? <laughs> I, it was in the IMDb trivia Was it facts. used? I assume like in the package. But okay. I just, I was like, what? Okay. Uh, and then a couple of reviews. Uh, New York Magazine film critic David Edelstein on NPR, NPR's All Things Considered uh, objected to the film rather strongly, arguing that how the Hollywood animation and writing formulas washed out the spirit of the book. He wrote that this kind of animation featured was wrong for the source material, uh, demonstrating how the book's text was used in the film in this excerpt from the review. Edelstein discussed Audrey's uh, describing the truffle trees to Ted, the, uh, quote, the touch of their tufts was much softer than silk, and they had the sweet smell of fresh buttery butterfly milk. And in the movie, Ted says, wow, what does that even mean? And Audrey says, I know, right? So one of the only lines that is from the book that does have Dr. Seuss's sublime whimsy is basically made fun of or at least dragged down to earth. Hmm. So I'm going to have to see that in context. And so, yeah, again, and apparently he said one of the only lines from the book, which <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and then Richard Roper, uh, who called it, uh, quote, a solid piece of family entertainment. And then Roger Moore, writing for the Pittsburgh Tribune, called the film, quote, a feast of bright Seuss colors and wonderful Seuss design. And he also supported its environmentalist message. And unfortunately, there's no Ebert review. Obviously, Dang. he was passed away at this point, but there was also no Ebert website like yeah the other people who did Ebert reviews after he passed away. Nobody reviewed this one that I could find on their mm -hmm. website. So. There you go. Katie, where can people watch The Lorax? Um, well, you can check with your local library or local video rental store if you've still got one. Uh, you can stream this on Netflix 
or you can rent it for around $4 from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, Flix, Fling, and Spectrum. There you go. Uh, yeah, it should be it should be a fun little fun little diversion in between mm-hmm. diversion between divergent um, mm. before we get to and wrap up with Allegiant. But yeah, it's the uh, should be interesting. I've not seen it. I've uh, we we did a bonus episode on. I think the only Illumination film I've seen was the one we did the bonus episode of The Grinch. Um, yeah. Which was like okay. Oh, that might be the only Illumination film I've, I've seen. I've never too. seen Despicable Me or any of the mini yeah. movies or any of that. I've not seen Secret Life of Pets or any of those. I didn't see Horton Hears a Who. Like I literally don't think I've seen any of their other movies other than yeah. <laughs> The Grinch, which again was just kind of like okay. It was fine. Like, yeah. yeah. So I'm interested to see how this one is. It doesn't have great reviews, but we shall see. We'll find out. We will find out. Come back in one week's time. We're talking about the Lorax. Until that time. Guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep keep being awesome. awesome.